Hello to all of you. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, and welcome to our podcast, which we're calling TMI, The Motivation Inside. I hope this continues to be one fun and productive listening ride for all of you. For those of you that don't know me, I am the founder of Skybridge Capital, a global investment firm. The reason we are doing TMI is to share the many phases of success and wealth. And I say it every time, it's not all that pretty. I'd also want to let you in on how we got here because it's important to understand that there is greatness inside each and every one of you. And everybody can achieve success, particularly in America. Uh, and so I like bringing in my friends to talk about that journey of uh, where we are today, but also all the bumps involved. Uh, every week, I tell you the same thing. Not the typical Wall Street guy. Uh, I'm still living two miles uh, from my mom and dad out in Manhasset, Long Island. Uh, it's uh, I'm gonna probably some of you are gonna say, "Wow, that's an Italian mama's boy." Not the Manhattan socialite, if you will. Uh, why do I say all this stuff? For me, it's about sticking to your core. Uh, for me, it's about staying close to your roots. Uh, a, a, a guy that trained me at Goldman, a guy by the name of Bill Groover, once said to me, you got to remember where you've come from. There's no question about that. But you also have to know where you're getting to. And so if you're aspiring to a certain leadership role, you have to hold yourself with that dignity even though you still are anchored to your roots. And so this is super important for me. And this is why I'm about to introduce you to one of my closest friends, uh, one of my mentors, uh, the trustee on my estate. So if my kids are listening, and by the way, my kids never listen to my podcast, <laughs> but if they were listening, uh, you better be nice to Bobby because he controls the keys if I'm dead, okay? You're going to have to go to him for the dough. Uh, so I want to bring Bobby in here in a second. Uh, but I just want to talk a slight bit about leadership and mentoring and what it really, really takes. If you think you can do this on your own, you are sorely mistaken. Uh, one of the cultural tenets of success is you have to build a fantastic intellectual board of advisors. Uh, David Petraeus said to me, Anthony, we may be good by ourselves, but we are so much better uh, when we are together, we're working to solve a problem. We're so much smarter. Uh, the IQs don't add together. They actually increase exponentially if you're working with the right uh, collaborators and the right collaboration. So here's one of my dearest friends, my mentor. We've known each other for close to 30 years, which is sort of sad because I do lie about my age. I don't know how I'm going to get away with that now that I mentioned the 30-year relationship. But I spent many years at Goldman Sachs, seven to be exact. Uh, but Bobby, how many years were you at Goldman? 20? 20. So Bobby was there 20 years. He then left and became a principal and partner at Sandler O'Neill and Partners. Please welcome Bobby Castrognano to TMI. Bobby, welcome to TMI. Great to be here, Anthony. Good now, to see you. Now, for all of our listeners out there, why don't we start out with how you and I met? Sure. So it was 1990, as I recall it, just after two, you... Two Italians not landscaping the houses at Goldman Sachs <laughs> Partners actually working there. Absolutely right. <laughs> now, that's true. So it was just after you had left investment banking, and, and as I had said to Susan... Okay, let me interrupt them already. Just after I got fired from investment banking... You're fired. And then you and Bill Groover decided to rehire me into the sales area. Yeah, so let's go back to your opening line about leadership. Getting fired is looking at the glass as half empty. After you leaving investment banking is half full. <laughs> so, so my view is half full, and I remember that uh, uh, 
afternoon where we met day one, said, listen, you're going to spend some time in institutional equities, learn a division, and then off you go. But as I told Susan a week or two back in, in anticipation of today's event, uh, it was the second day that I remember more vividly after having been away from the firm for six weeks and coming back that uh, day two, you asked for a week's vacation, which I found a little <laughs> bit obnoxious. Oh, it wasn't but, a week. I asked for two weeks, actually. Yeah, right. I and, would and, run for the jugular. But, but what was interesting about it, apropos of your lead-in, was that your reason for wanting the time off was to go back and study for the bar yeah, because I, you'd promised your mom that I'd you were going to pass twice. that. I'd failed it so, twice. So that's a big interjection here because the, the point of that is got to finish things, and I had, a, I had to complete it. I, I didn't want to go 0 for 3. Right. So, well, yeah, it's not only finishing, you know, going one for three or 0 for three. It, it is you make a promise and you persevere, right? And so I think one of the tenets of being a good leader is you didn't want to be a lawyer. However, you wanted to make sure that whatever it took to go through law school and promise your parents that you were going to achieve something, you did it. You tried to. Kudos to you. Well, uh, well, and I should also point out, Bobby got me the two weeks off, even though I didn't deserve it. Uh, didn't get any pay, Doc, thank God, and thank you for that. And I went home and I studied for uh, 16 hours a day for the two straight weeks and did pass the bar in February of 1992. You, you, you are known in the industry as the coach. So tell us a little bit about that and tell us a little bit about why people call you the coach. Do you remember the first person that called you the coach? Yeah, I do. Um, it was in Hong Kong, and um, I think the reason it happened there was that I was one of the few people that the firm had sent, Goldman Sachs had sent, to Hong Kong to do recruiting and training and build out what was then the fourth financial center for the firm. So there was a lot of young people there, and uh, one of the women uh, that worked for the firm came up and said, you know, I need some time, I need some advice, principally about, you know, we were obviously not Chinese people, but yet we were in a a, um, a place and at a time where the Chinese government was taking lots of industries public. And so it, it took a lot more than just pure finance to, to get the job done in, in developing relationships and things like that. So that's where the name came from. It's, it's a great name. You know, uh, Susan Crack, our, our, my producer, wants me to remind you of the first call that you got from HR on me. Right. Again, that was early on. We were building our relationship together. So what right. happened there? Well, what happened was, uh, alluding back to what we discussed a moment ago, you had uh, left the firm for a very short period of time. And upon leaving, there's a you know formal way of leaving with respect to your documentation as well as a bonus that you were owed. Severance, severance, severance package. Severance package, which you yep. got. And Bobby's since, being really nice. I got fired, and they said, you're fired, and here's your $11,000 severance check. Right. And, and so then since your fired and severance check was, was uh, given to you, but you then came back to the firm, the firm justifiably wanted their severance check back. That's totally true. And unfortunately, you'd spent it. Yeah. So the first call I got was, what is it with this guy? We want our money. <laughs> she she was terrific. I, I you know I'm I'm drawing a blank on her name. Tony and Fonte. Tony and Fonte. Tony, if you're out there listening, thank you. You were incredible. She called me 
And I, and I then said, okay, you got to call Bobby C. Because I knew Bobby was going to help me out here. She called me and said, I got very good news for you. We're not going to mark you down as fired. We're going to mark you down as an interdepartmental transfer. I said, oh, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. She says, but we need to get the $11,000 check back, okay? Right. I said, so it's going to cost me $11,000 to not have to tell people that, that I wasn't I was fired? fired? Just you tell, tell them the I was entire fired. world I was yeah. fired. Let I said, go call 11. Bobby C. I already spent the dough right. trying to pay down some of that school debt, you know? Right. I know the feeling. So so tell us about how you grew up, though, Bob. I think it's a, it, it, I think you know, for all of us, uh, uh, that life story anchor is wicked important. So yeah. we had Scott Brown on. He, he moved 18 times in 17 years before he started college. Right. It obviously had an impact on his adulthood. So how did you grow up? So it was the antithesis of that. Um, I grew up with a dad who was an engineer, a mom who was a nurse. We only moved once. I had two younger sisters. And so I had what I would say hit the lottery kind of uh, family and or uh, growing up experience. We moved from Connecticut when I was uh, 10 or 11 years old. So where did you guys start at in, in uh, Manhattan? I was born, yeah, I was born at St. Vincent's Hospital in Manhattan because my mom was a nurse there. We uh, lived for about eight or nine years over by LaGuardia Airport, and then we moved to Connecticut when my dad... Stanford, Connecticut. Stanford, Connecticut, when my dad's uh, job moved up there. So been there ever since. And in terms of, you know, weaving that back to coach... I always found parallels uh, between sports, competing, and teamwork. Your comment earlier about, you know, is one and one two, or is it really three if you're playing baseball or football? I, I always believed in the latter, and so I wasn't that talented, so I was always one of the role players. But we had a lot of success. We Are won you, a lot. You're, you're, you're being humble because everybody's got a different level of talents. If, uh, if uh, people are listening to this podcast or in this room right now, what they would see about you is your enormous compassion, but it's combined with a commercial instinct like nobody that I've ever seen. You are a panther when it comes to commercial instincts and smelling economic opportunity. So did you get that from your mom or dad? Did you get it from an uncle? Did you get it from a casino? Where did you get that from, I Bobby? got that from my uncle. No doubt about that. We, we, uh, we spent a lot of time together. What was your uncle's name? Frank Baffa. Okay. So what was, how, what was Uncle Frank like? Uncle was his nose crooked? Was it no, straight? What was it? No, but he was a, uh, a union official, and he understood more about New York City and how businesses worked here than anybody I ever well, met. Tell us some tell us some Uncle Frank aphorisms. Go ahead. Well, he, he always said that, you know, what you wanted to ultimately do is you wanted to understand who the decision makers were in anything. So, number one, you had to be able to see through whatever everybody was doing. Number two, go into a restaurant, go into a diner, whatever, Always overpay and overtip. No, that's true. The maitre d, okay, so the that's, waitress. That's um, tutte italiano, okay? My yeah. grandfather said to me, make sure those arms are long. Don't have alligator arms right. when you're at the bar. So, you reach into your pocket. You make sure you tip everybody. Right, and so that everybody recognizes Don't be cheap fact, out there, right. ladies and gentlemen. That, you know, that's the way it goes. So he, he was the guy who taught me about Wall Street 
and about the potential opportunity. And at heart, I was, was and still am a capitalist. I think it's the greatest system in the world. Has its flaws. Why do you think it's getting picked on so horribly? Because it's easy. Always pick on the money. Yeah, why? Why, though? Because people have two sets of views. One is that if you're making the money, then you have the right and the obligation to use it in a good way. And if you're not, why not? So, for example, in my view today, lots of people use the phrase equal opportunity. I believe in that. I'm also a pragmatist. You're never going to get an equal outcome. Well, that's right, because you have the different contribution levels, different brains, different intelligence. Right. And so, so then so these, these socialist systems are super failures. We both know that. And yet, what is the appeal of this crack socialist Bernie Sanders? Is that a failure of the U.S. educational system that no. people don't understand? No. They, they, they don't realize how failed the policies are of statism? No, I, I think what it is is that when you're a younger person, which we all were, you don't differentiate between what looks good on paper and what right, actually can get executed. Yeah, Milton Friedman so, once said that you have to judge policies not by their intent, right. but you have to judge them by how they actually work. Work, right? So if you look back, and I'll just give you one example, but in 1965... We had Detroit Model City. That policy on paper was designed to help the citizenry of Detroit. In fact, it took 50 years because what happened was Detroit went bankrupt. And so in the early years, it looked like it worked. But over time, if yeah, you see. continue down a path where you can't financially back something... You're going to have a problem ultimately. Yeah, yeah, people have to be incentivized. They have to be self-determined. Uh, they have to be aspirational. Uh, we we, we got to get off of the policy of poverty maintenance, and we got to get into the policies of an aspirational society, of growing a society. But I want to, want to go back to you, Bob C. Yeah. How did you develop those clear-thinking skills that you're so well-known for on Wall Street? I don't think you develop them. I think you... you Instinctively, your DNA, you have some talents, you have lots of warts. I think one of my talents is I'm a pretty decent read of people, and I can tell... All right, so what was the early read on me? Was I, I, you, you thought I was obviously a little screwed up, but no. I, what was no, the no, early no. read? I, I thought you were very, very talented, uh, equal parts insecure. Oh, well, uh, that's for sure. And, and aspirational, right? So... For me, things that that I thought would be helpful to talk, you would talk, try talk to talk to our listeners though about the in, in insecurity in general and how it manifests itself and why you thought I was insecure. I, just meeting you and talking to you for two or three minutes each day in that month, it was clear to me that you were carrying the baggage of look, I've been fired and I can't have that happen again. I got a wife yeah, and a big child. Chip on my shoulder, anxiety about it. Yeah, uh, I don't know that chip showed. Self consciousness about it, feeling okay, these guys are going to think I'm inferior to them because I got busted and fired in my last job. Right. So, so the bottom line was how could I position you, as a buddy of mine, Bobby Valentine, would say? If you have a talented player position themselves in a way where they don't have to think, they can just play and, you know, see it, react to it. In my mind, 
that was putting you with a mentor like Tony Lotto, sure. who was to me a very, very yeah, shout, secure... shout out to Tony Lotto, head trader, Goldman Sachs, went on to be a partner, right? And bought the Michael Piazza jersey with me, the 9/11 jersey, right? And it was Tony Lotto's idea. And he does love when I tell the press my old boss, Tony Lotto. He loves the fact that he, I was under him and he had me under his thumb, Bobby. So Tony was just a terrific, terrific guy. He was very credentialed and he was very uh, level in his approach. I'm not sure if I ever heard him raise his voice on a trading floor. He must have, but I didn't hear it. Yeah, he, and, and let me tell you, to this day, he's still the same way. So you, you mentioned Bobby V. Uh, Bobby Valentine, you've been yep. friends with Bobby since you guys were kids. Yep. You're in business together. Yep. Tell us a little bit about the relationship with you and Robert J. Valentine. We're Stanford guys. Stanford. That's right. right. You can go anywhere in the world, but if you find a Stanford guy, they grew up a certain way. How, okay, so what was that way? So, you and, know. And, and I might add, there's an Italian center in Stanford, well, which yeah. I've been angling to be an honorary member of for 25 years. I got no luck. Right. But what, is, what does it mean to be a Stanford guy? We all grew up, as I said earlier, um, I was a baseball player, as was he. So we grew up in competitive sports. And although it was never said this way, we grew up in a time and a place where you earned your way. As time went along, and frankly, you know, I, I think some parents wanted their best for their children, whatever, but it became, okay, you have to play a certain amount of innings, you have to get a trophy, you have to be recognized. And in reality, I think it dampened the competitive nature. So I used to say to my sisters with nine nephews and nieces, look, if somebody is recreating, you can put them in the backyard in a pair of shorts and a t-shirt. But if they're competing, they have a uniform and there's a final score, win or lose. Yeah, amen. No tie. All right, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift gears abruptly because this is a huge part of your personal story, and I want to share it with people. I want to go back to Tuesday, September the 11th, 2001, and I'll set the scene for people. You had just retired from Goldman Sachs. Yes. Uh, you'd moved back up to Stanford, and you were thinking about possibly not doing anything. You were thinking about possibly another career, possibly even going into education. Uh, and the two World Trade Center towers go down. The Pentagon is hit. There's a crash in Pennsylvania of an aircraft. We lose about 3,000 people. Yep. And 66 people from the firm Sandler, O'Neill, and Partners die, 23 of which are from the equities division of Sandler. So the equities division has effectively been wiped out of this small investment banking company. Let's set the scene. And so then what happens from there? Well, what happened from there was you called me on Thursday the 13th, mentioned to me about a firm that was in one of the towers, Sandler O'Neill, and would I consider volunteering? And I said yes, and I started volunteering on the 17th of September, which was Monday. The Monday that uh, Mr. Grasso reopened the New York Stock Exchange. So I want to I set that scene. It is Monday in New York City, and you can smell the burning of the destruction in lower Manhattan. Yep. And you, my brother David, and I 
Yeah. Met at the Harvard Club at 7 a.m. For breakfast. For breakfast. And then what did we do, Bob? you remember? Yeah. You and I walked over to 783rd Avenue. You introduced me to Terry Maltese at San Laronial Asset Management at the time. And that was our temporary headquarters to begin reconstructing San Laronial. That, that was the crisis center. For, it was yep. their asset management arm, and it wasn't destroyed. It was up in Midtown. Yep. And so they turned that into the crisis center. Bank America, who was one of the clearing people for Sandler, was also helping over nine, in, nine West 57th Nine Street. West 57th Street, and their office is there. Uh, and you and my brother David, in conjunction with me, opened for trading Sandler O'Neill on Monday, September the 7th. And my old partner, Andy Bozart, from Oscar Capital. Bozart and I started that firm in 1996. On the 17th of September, 2001, he called in 100,000 shares of Bank America, yeah. uh, because Bank America was such a big support to Sandler O'Neill. But there's a there's another nuance of this story that I want viewers to know. So now you're volunteering over there. Yep. Uh, you cannot work there because you had 20 years of service at Goldman. You had a ton of stock and options that you had so incredibly earned at Goldman Sachs, and it would have been a competitive conflict of interest mm-hmm. had you gone to Sandler O'Neill to work. And so what happened, Bobby? So I had a conversation, had the opportunity to speak to Jimmy Dunn, who was a senior managing principal at the time, and we talked about my two weeks as a volunteer and the extent to which um, I could or would want to join. And I told Jimmy, you know, I have a certain amount of stock and options. He was kind enough to talk to John Powers, who at the time spoke to John Thane, and John Thane and Bob Steele uh, were very, very gracious. Okay, so these are all senior partners at Goldman Sachs. Yeah, they were running the firm. They were on the management committee, and they were extraordinarily gracious in the sense that they said, given the extraordinary nature of what had happened, that uh, I, I, may be the, yeah, I may be one of the only people ever in the history to have my non-compete waived. But it was a gracious thing. It was a sign of uh, the times— it was a sign of patriotism. It was no a doubt. sign of humanity. Uh, and I give real kudos to uh, John Thane and Bob Steele. And I remember Estes Stetcher, who was the uh, general yep. counsel, yeah, was, also in, was also involved with that. Yep. What, what makes Wall Street human, Bob? You're part of that humanity. I know if you talk to Liz Ann Saunders, Gary right. Kaminsky, right. Guy Adami, you talk to anybody on Wall Street, they say you're the heart and soul of Wall Street, and yet the media blitzes Wall Street, demonizes Wall Street, rocks and eggs and tomatoes are thrown at us. I feel like I'm at a Trump rally outside the doors uh, some days on Wall Street. Well, and so what makes Wall Street human, Bob? And what, 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 do you, what would you say to all of that? Yeah, what I'd say to all of it is let's just use an example of the financial crisis and what happened at the time. Many, many people demonize Wall Street, the press, uh, others, but it, at its core, there were some bad actors. They were few in terms of percentage of all the people that earn their living in finance. And frankly, I think finance is a sector, and providing credit is pretty important. So at the end of the day, you make your own choices, but it makes for news. It makes for the front page yeah, of the story. I, I, I agree with you on that, but I think it's important for us to get that message out there that there are a lot of ni- nice human beings and a lot of charitable people 
Uh, we're going to take some uh, uh, email questions from our listeners, and this one, first one, is from Joan in Chicago. Uh, Bob, how has Anthony changed over the years? Oh, boy. Uh, so, Joan, nice. Thanks, Joan. Yeah, Joan, nice to meet you. I, I think, like all of us, there's a certain level of um, maturity and or candor that Anthony uh, has developed in terms of being more comfortable with what he's done, both uh, beauty marks and warts. So, for example, in building Skybridge, initially the model for Skybridge was under uh, duress and then really uh, was in trouble just prior and during the beginning of the financial crisis. And yet he turned that into a success by being entrepreneurial and, and understanding that banks were going to have to exit certain businesses, and, and he buying a business from Citigroup, I think, is testimony. So I, I think that's how he's changed. This is uh, from Kim from Greenwich. Okay, that's near your hometown. Bobby, what's the craziest thing that the Mooch has ever done, or at least the craziest thing that you've witnessed? What happened, and did you have to help him out of anything? No. Well, I know what the craziest thing was. This is he probably decided somebody that knows me actually yeah, really he, trying to egg you on, man. Yeah, no problem. Kim, thanks for that. It's probably Kim Cuomo out there or something from from Goldman. Go so, ahead. Hey, Kim, nice to have met you as well. And I know what the craziest thing was. He decided to buy Maggie Moo ice cream. <laughs> that idea didn't work. Yeah, and was, no, I didn't have to get him out of it yeah. because I refused to well, invest. That's, that's what entrepreneurs do. You know, we, we, we dabble in different things. We, I own a few restaurants. Uh, it was an ice cream franchise. I put it in the wrong location out on Long Island. Uh, but then I had the general manager probably stole $70,000 of cash out of the cash register. Uh, so I didn't have the right controls in place back then, too. So it got crippled for a number of different reasons. But i got to tell this story very quickly. I'll tell you how I caught him. It didn't seem right. I was, doing, I was doing count, customer count, customer count. And then I was adding up what those customers could have possibly spent. And then the register seemed off. I said, this is so odd. So I went in there one night. He was there by himself. I said, hey, listen, I like that crushed Reese's Pieces, you know, those those things that come in from Hershey's. Can you go down in the basement and get them for me? And then I punched the code for the cash register, popped the cash register. I took about $85 out of my pocket, and I stuffed it into the register. And then I closed the drawer. Then I called them that night. I said, hey, how was the register? Were we good? Oh, yeah, yeah, we were minus $5. We were minus $5? Okay, I put $85 in the register. Next night, I did the same thing. How was the register? Oh, we were plus $3. And so I was able to catch him that way. But it was a, it was a sad tale about entrepreneurial failure, uh, but a real lesson learned there and about how to control a, a business and really watch the P's and Q's of a business. Right. And so to Kim's question, one other change is it was Reagan who said trust and verify. And I think it's Anthony learning that any business is really, really important that you manage your risk. No question. And that you have your eye on the details. Bobby, I've heard you say this before, and so I'm going to repeat it for everybody, uh, that, that, that in general, all of us are flawed. Each of us have strengths and weaknesses, and that we all have to learn continuously. So tell us what you mean by all that. So I can't speak for others, but I can speak for myself. I really lack patience. I need to do a better job with being more patient with people around me, myself. 
and more importantly, understand that at the end of the day, what you're trying to achieve, whatever your goal is, um, you have to understand that it's not a straight line up. It just isn't. And so when you think things are going well, you better be really, really humble. And when you think things are going really poorly, you better be able to stick in there. Well, I think that's a very big lesson for people. It's about your temperament and not really uh, buying into the BS on the upside or, or any of the hardship on the downside. But but one, one thing that Lou Eisenberg said to me over the weekend that I'll share, and Lou was a legendary partner at Goldman. He's now the uh, finance chair of the Republican National Committee. He tells young people that uh, the true test is you're arcing your career, thinking it's going to slow perfectly, and then you have your first disaster. You want a job. You want an opportunity. You're trying to get something. It doesn't work for you. How do you respond? How do you bounce? Uh, and so Lou's opinion is resiliency. What does Bob C. tell kids today in order to succeed? So I met with Jerome Hayden this morning. Yep. Jerome works, works here at... Uh, Skybridge Capital. Terrific young guy asked the same question, paraphrasing it, and I said, you need to do two things. You need to invest in yourself educationally, so you make sure you've taken all the right courses, as well as, um, you know, uh, reading books and, and, and others. And then the second thing you have to do is you have to be relentless absolutely relentless in trying to get the time of people around you that you respect. You got to figure out a way to get five minutes of their time and, and just say, so what did you see today? Whether it's in the market, your personal life, I think surrounding yourself with those types of people and being respectful about it, but persistent, mm -hmm. That gives you a core. Oh, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I'm going to talk about insecurity. I, I was at Goldman. I was reassigned uh, into the institutional sales area. And I remember getting up one morning. I think I told this on a prior podcast. I was so nervous to go to work because I didn't have the market knowledge, the product knowledge. And yet you guys were putting me on the desk, baptism by fire. You'd given me a ton of fantastic accounts. And there I was. What was I going to tell a 50-year-old guy at the age of 27 about the stock market? And I remember uh, calling Keith Banks, who's now the head of U.S. Trust. But at that time, he was the head of research at J.P. Morgan. I called him up. I said, how you doing? He said, fine. I said, let me read you the research. He said, I don't want to hear the research. What, what do you think is good in the market? I started panicking. And I said, well, this is what I think is good in the market. He says, okay, let's go have a lunch. And he met me at the Royalton Hotel because J.P. Morgan was at 522 Fifth Avenue at the time. And he said, okay, listen to me. You're very, very nervous, and you're lacking some confidence in your delivering of the sales. Imagine that. And I said, you are 100% right, so what do I need to do? He goes, okay, get a piece of paper and a pen. And he said, you're going to read this, you're going to read that, you're going to focus on this, read Barron's, Wall Street Journal. And he laid out a strategy for me to upload my product knowledge. It right. was one of the most valuable things that happened to me in the first two months of you putting me on that desk, Bobby. Right. So, I, so spend time with people. I'm going to refer back to my breakfast with Jerome as well as a coffee that I had with Susan because sometime after that, where you uh, met with Keith, I happened to walk by the trading desk one afternoon in the summer and overheard you recapping a call that you did with a client 
whom you'd sold 10,000 shares of Quaker Oats stock to. I don't remember the price, but I'll pick 50. The stock closed at 49 and three quarters, and you were going over the trade with him. And he said, well, I'm leaving here. I'm going to go pick up my wife, and we're going out shopping. We're going to buy every box of Quaker Oats cereal that's, <laughs> that's out there. Right, that's so true. by tomorrow morning, it will show up in their yeah, earnings. That's now, true. I don't care how much product knowledge you have. You have to have a lot, but you also have to be pretty quick on your feet. Before I let you go, I want to talk a little bit about salt. Where do you think we should be going? Where do you think the puck's going, Bob? Well, I look, I think where the puck is going is similar to Major League Baseball or any of the others. You look at ESPN today and Disney, the stock's under pressure because ESPN's under pressure. So ultimately, I think what will happen is salt and Wall Street Week somehow will be part of assets that become salt media or Wall Street media, and ultimately you'll have your own TV channel, not unlike Bloomberg. Um, and where that goes, you know, I, I, I am not smart enough to know, but I know this, the 132nd of every Major League Baseball team's ownership in MLB is a really big deal. No, there's no question. You know, you've been a terrific friend over the years. Uh, you've been a phenomenal mentor to so many people. So on behalf of all the people on Wall Street and around the world that call you the coach, I'm going to give you a big shout-out of gratitude and thanks. I'd like to thank my great friend, uh, Bob Castrognano. Uh The world, not just Wall Street, needs more people like you, Bobby. Please come back soon. Uh, be sure to subscribe to our podcast. It's TMI with Anthony Scaramucci. Don't forget to rate and review TMI, please. Even if you don't like it, we'd like to hear about it because it'll make it better. But of course, if you like it, we want to hear from you seven to 10 times more. Uh, and we'll continue to bring you the content that matters to you. You can follow me at Scaramucci, S-C-A-R-A-M-U-C-C-I on Twitter. Uh, and if you want to email us questions or ideas for these podcasts, that would be podcasts at skybridgeinsights.com. Have an awesome week. We'll see you next time.